Hello, welcome to the Voices Heard Lives Empowered podcast brought to you by Power. Today we speak to Tim Amphiligoff. Tim was the advocacy development worker for Hertfordshire Council in 1992 and he was vital to the founding of Power. We discuss why he felt there was a need for a new county-wide advocacy agency, his role in forming Power, why it was unique and what makes him proud of Power. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you, Ben? I'm good, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us today. I'd just like to kind of get a bit more about your background. So, in terms of before power, what did you do? So, um, I came to Hertfordshire in 1992. Before that, I'd worked in Kent with Future Service Volunteers and for the Carers National Association. And I had been involved with doing some advocacy for carers. And I came to take on a job in 92 in Hertfordshire as advocacy development worker for the county. And so that's how I came to be involved with the setting up of power. What was it about around that time that made you think that the beneficiaries would benefit from having that support? Well, a few things. Obviously, the work I'd done in the voluntary sector in Kent and I've met some people there who were doing some quite interesting advocacy work, particularly around people being resettled out of the long-stay hospitals in Kent. The other thing that has really driven me throughout my career, which has mainly been spent working with the voluntary sector, is that uh, I used to meet a lot of people who we'd finally get them connected to a service, and they would say something like, I wish I'd known about this five years ago. And there was this sense that there was quite a lot of help for people, but it was never made easy to find it. It was all over the place, and different organisations weren't necessarily talking to each other. So if you then add on to that the problem some people have speaking up for themselves and, and saying what it is they need and want, what we had was a really complicated picture that was stopping people getting their rights, sometimes as basic quality service. So I'd seen that over and over again. And when I saw the job in Hertfordshire, you know, which was based around developing a new advocacy service, I was very excited by the possibilities. When we had Isabella on the podcast, she listed all the different advocacy groups they had in Hertfordshire, lots of different ones. And what I asked her was, was that the whole point then, is to bring it all under one umbrella? So when I came into post, I visited some other parts of the country to see what they were doing. And quite a lot of them were setting up countywide advocacy organisations. But the problem tended to be then that they, they didn't have a lot of money to do a lot of advocacy. They'd set up this structure. Because we were aware of the speaking up groups, and there, were a couple, there wasn't a lot of advocacy in 92 other than those um, groups like North Arts People First that were, that were specifically helping people speak up. But we, what I did for the first couple of years, really, was get pots of money to do pilot projects really and we got a local charity usually to help us manage it and then we had a steering group of people say with learning disabilities or mental health problems or whatever to help us think about how we wanted to do this and actually get on and do some work and then what we ended up doing with power was bringing together those projects into one new one new thing so we had a track record of doing the work when we came to set up the organization 
and it felt like it was the right way round, and it meant that we had lots of people who'd experienced advocacy and benefited from it when we came to set the organisation up. And it, it took a while because uh, we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that people really had a strong voice in the way power was. But we, we weren't going to call it the power at that point. We were going to call it something like the Hartshire Advocacy Agency or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think that was really... I mean, Isabel will have talked talk to you about the people who use Advocacy Group and so on. And I could say a bit more about that if it's helpful. But certainly we had a lot of experience... I, my contract was originally for three years, but it got extended, and it wasn't until the fourth year that that power was launched. So we spent a lot of time trying to get it right, make sure that people with the experience of disability and, and being marginalised were really powerful in the way power came into being. So you were technically employed by the council, and then you worked alongside Isabella and others to, to form power. But then did you yeah. remain a council employee? In a way, I was doing myself out of a job um, because, in effect, when there was a chief executive of power, you didn't really need my role in the form that mm-hmm. it had been. And a, a role became, a different role became available, which I then went into. So I kind of did myself out of my original job. But that it was always a development job. It wasn't meant to be a job for life it was meant to be getting something like power off the ground so in that sense yeah i sort of pulled the ladder up after me it was it was um it was it was very satisfying too once i knew i had a job to go to 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 have done that because clearly power has uh, gone from strength to strength and had a huge impact on a lot of people's lives and i suppose that's the point wasn't it of your job was for it to be made irrelevant you could compare it to advocacy so that the people can self-advocate and empower themselves. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've had some rocky times along the, along the way because um, people come and go and things sometimes feel stronger and sometimes feel weaker. But it was always an important part of the philosophy of power that people with those experiences would be influencing, if not all the operational decisions, at least the philosophy and values behind what power was trying to do. And as you say, advocacy is about helping people speak for themselves and whenever possible withdrawing entirely and the people we work with you know they had a lot of experience being told what to do or how to live their lives or you know no they couldn't have the thing they were asking for because it wasn't reasonable so that them having their own organization was fundamentally important i think and i remember we did um, an exercise very early on we had a a self-advocacy group from Nottingham come down they used a lot of pictures to help people with learning difficulties and others explain how they were feeling and stuff and we put this picture on the front of the report but basically one of the guys with learning difficulties that we worked with did a picture of what it felt like when he was told off at his day centre and he did this picture of the manager of the day centre as this huge blob and then this picture of him as a tiny blob next to it and if you ever wanted uh, a picture that described the power relationship sometimes between the service provider and the so-called service user. I mean, it's absolutely amazing picture. And, you know, it's so powerful to have things expressed in that way. And I'm, I'm not, I don't think for one moment that the manager of the day centre wanted to be perceived in that way. But And it, it may have been quite difficult for the person to explain how they felt. But that picture, I think, was, you know... Very revealing, isn't it? And... It, I think I suppose it's all about perception. It's just how that service user perceives them and putting yourself in them shoes. 
Well, absolutely, and it's not just um, service users who get institutionalised. The staff get institutionalised too, if we're not careful. And I think, you know, this was these were very different times. So in Hertfordshire, we had a lot of long-stay hospitals. So people, I mean, we worked with some of our advocacy projects with people who'd lived in hospital for all their lives, actually, or most of their lives. And a lot of the parents were very concerned about the hospitals closing because they thought people were safe in there. But a lot of the stories we heard from some of those people were that their lives in there were very unsafe, actually, a lot of the time, mm. either from other service users, sometimes from staff. And there was one particular guy, Ronnie, that I helped him write a little autobiography of his time in uh, Leavesden. And, I mean, you just can't believe the sort of language that was used. So people were called high-grade or low-grade, and Ronnie was high-grade. He was used as someone who could help out with jobs and, you know, be quite useful. But he was, you know, he could tell you stories about how they used to get into the women's wards and all sorts of things. And, you know, I took some of them with a pinch of salt, but I think it was it was a very different world and you know there were there were lovely nurses in there and great care going on as well i'm not saying there wasn't but there was that whole institutional mass production of care was very of its time i think and it certainly wouldn't have been fit for the 21st century wasn't fit for the 20th but again you know back in the 70s so even before my 20 years before i came to hertfordshire they were still medical students were being still shown people and saying this is a typical cretin or whatever you know it's a very different world from the one we're in now but you know there's always that risk of falling back into some of that stuff i understand that some of them had padded rooms yeah so we at one point we had um, we had a ward in what was bell barnes hospital it's now a housing estate because that was the only place we could accommodate our project at the time and we had a padded cell in it yeah and you know, at that point also, because they were, they, were, they were decanting a lot of the people out of the hospital, but there were still some people that still living there, and they used to sometimes wander into the office, which was quite interesting. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's only when you start thinking back that you realise how different the world was then. And, of course, Hertfordshire being on the outskirts of London had an awful lot of big hospitals, more than a lot of other places, because of, you know, it was cheaper for people in London, I guess, for them to build these hospitals in, out in the countryside as it was then. And so it, it changes the nature of the place because obviously lots of people work in these hospitals. And then when they're being um, taken down and, and uh, you know, people are, are, are being decanted, that was a huge process. And one of our most important projects was called People's Lives. It was all about making sure that those people had a voice in, in saying where they wanted to live. I mean, we had people who, you know, uh, were from Reading and were being sent back to Reading mm. when they haven't been to Reading for 50 years, mm. you know, and talking about, is that, is that what you want to do? Mm. And, um, and those sort of conversations with people with quite significant learning disabilities and trying to understand what they really want or understood about the question, is, you know, some of that was really interesting and difficult. But I think I think we helped if only sometimes in making the professionals who were making decisions be more careful about how they did that and really, you know, ensuring that what people were interested in and like doing were factored properly into where they were going to live. Mm. In Ronnie, who was, as I say, very able, very entertaining, he lived in a group home. His main sort of hobby was collecting toy cars and things. And he was, he was reasonably happy, but I, 
I think he actually would have preferred to still be in Leavesden, not least because, you know, he had a status there, even if we might not approve of that status, which he didn't have living in the community mm. as a as a resident of a group home. So, yeah, it's, it's, all of this stuff is really complicated and interesting. But, of course, one of the problems with all this work is that there is, I don't want to call it a hierarchy of disabilities, but within the groups of people who have different types of challenges, they don't always... Uh, 100% respect each other's perspectives and that's one of the things that we work quite hard at with power because we wanted it to be for everybody who faced you know discrimination and challenges so we had you know projects like Equal Voice aimed at at people from uh, black and minority ethnic communities who needed help speaking up but also you know mental health learning disability and people come from very different perspectives and to get them all working together which is a big part of what the People Who Use Advocacy Group was about, saying we all have the same issue, which is sometimes we need help to be heard. But obviously that's very different if you've got profound learning disability and if you've got um, a, you know, a mental health problem that sometimes is really intense and sometimes not there at all. And um, getting a sense of shared purpose and, and, and values was sometimes was, there were difficult moments, shall I say, in doing that. But I think it made power much stronger that we did insist on doing that. And I think that's what power's about, isn't it? It's just that everyone has these basic human rights. Everyone has an inherent right to get their voice heard. And that's what power's all about and, and still is. How did your role evolve then once power was set up? I can't remember because this is... Uh, <laughs> I haven't got lots of records to hand to look at. But from memory, a big part of my role was obviously to make sure that the money the county council was putting in was was safe in the sense that, you know, the structures and things worked. So, I, But I think once we had a chief executive in post, then I, I think I, I used to go to board meetings as a sort of observer. But there was quite a long process of some of those um, different groups that we'd set up before power and how and when they chose to become part of it. It was a bit like the European Union. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Um, and actually, some of the mental health groups in particular didn't want to join to start with, but then they did for various reasons uh, over time. But, you know, so as you say, there were sort of, by that point, there were about 10 funded projects. Probably about six of them came in straight away and then others came in over time. And then, you know, it was about making sure that there was a, a sound financial basis for power to work with going forwards. I mean, I'm trying to remember... It was probably late 90s, but the, we got a very good, you know, report from the Care Quality Commission or whatever it was called in those days for the advocacy work that was going on in Hertfordshire and the range of different ways people could be heard. So I think that's always helped power. And obviously then it, I think under Jonathan Passmore as chief exec, it, it stopped being just Hertfordshire and started to expand to take on other contracts and stuff across England. From what I understand, what was going on in Hertfordshire at the time was quite groundbreaking. Yeah, and I, I, I haven't been very close to this recently, but, I mean, from recollection, at the time the, the um, Independent Complaints Advocacy Service, ICAS, was kind of being let out regional contracts, there were two or three big players. Power was one of them. I'm not aware of the, whether those other big players are kind of around anymore or if, whether they've kind of gone back to just being in you know, one region or what they're doing. But I think I think Power has been good at both maintaining the quality of advocacy but also branching out into some other areas as well. So 
I think that's part of why they've been so successful. And I think I think it is that, as you say, I think it was quite groundbreaking, but it was also because of that, I think it, it had a reputation which helped it keep going through some quite tough times. Because obviously we had times when there wasn't a lot of money around and, and all of those sorts of things. But I mean, I think what's also exciting is looking at the, the 25th birthday, you know, the people who are still around. As we know, some you know some key people have died and, and, and gone their different ways. But there are a lot of people still very, very committed. And by people, I mean people with lived experience, not just people like me, who have made it succeed, wanted to keep succeeding, and are, and are still you know, very passionately committed to power. I think that's an important part of why it's where it is. Their stories are just so inspirational, and you can tell that they're just really passionate about power. Absolutely. I mean, and for me, one of the proudest moments for me was when we went up to the Charity Commission on a visit from memory about 10 of the people who use <laughs> advocacy group, me and probably Isabel and maybe a couple of others. But the reason, one of the reasons we wanted to go was we wanted to make sure that there was no legal reason why different people couldn't serve as trustees on charitable boards. And to see people sort of grow six inches when the charity commission board said no you as people with learning disabilities you can be trustees you was just it was so empowering i think for them certainly for me i thought it was amazing and it it just meant that we'd gone right to sort of you know the top of the the pyramid in the world of charities confirmed that they could do this and they were going to do it and and that was really exciting the other side of that is i can remember being at a social services conference in Bournemouth or somewhere, you know, we'd made a point to the organisers that Arthur was a wheelchair user, so that had to be accessible. And they'd actually arranged for us to give our, our talk about advocacy in a room that you couldn't get to via the lift. So Arthur, who's an incredible guy, he didn't, didn't bat an eyelid. He just got out of his chair and went up the stairs on his bum, you know, one step at a time. I was outraged. You know, my boss made a formal complaint to the Association of Directors of Social Services. But, you know, we just got on with it. And that, you know, he was like that. He was incredible. And such a brilliant sense of humour. But also, he was one of the people who interviewed me when I came for the job, you know, which was a fundamentally important part of this. That it was, there was a powerful voice right from the beginning of people who actually knew what it was like being discriminated against and, and treated like that. I mean, you know. When I see photos of him, he's just always smiling, isn't he? And he's always yeah, engaging yeah. with people. He, it's, uh, it's really nice and to it see. Was so, it was so sad that he didn't get his OBE until after he died. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was good that he got it. And he certainly deserved it. And I think it was, that, again, was very powerful. An important message for people like him that, you know, they do get acknowledged for what they've, what they've achieved and what they've contributed. Yeah, amazing bloke. In your role now, I mean, do you see the impact that power has made in Hertfordshire for service users? Uh, yes, I mean, I don't, because I'm working in the NHS now and not in uh, on the social care side, I don't see as much of the advocacy stuff generally in my day-to-day -day work. What I do see a lot of is the work they're doing with Hearts Help and social prescribing. Mm -hmm. So I spend a huge amount of time working with them on that and I mean, we commissioned Hearts Help for the first time about 10 years ago, so that's the single way of getting information and advice about what the voluntary sector is doing in Hertfordshire. So, you know, your grandmother needs her garden doing, who can help with that? Which has been so crucial in COVID, hasn't it? 
and they've been absolutely crucial. Now, obviously, the, the other good thing about all of this is if someone rings up and actually they need advocacy, then that's really straightforward because power does that too. So you can get referred straight into that. But it's been really important part of, of us building a coalition of voluntary organisations working closely together to do all sorts of things, but particularly in the last year or so, make sure people get fed and get their medicine and don't, you know, aren't completely alone, which a lot of people otherwise would be. Yeah, feeling very isolated. Where would you like to see power in the next few years? I think, I mean, it's largely more of the same, I think. I mean, I think the, the stuff, the human rights stuff and all the stuff around um, do not resuscitate uh, work they did during COVID, there's lots of ways that people need their rights making sure they they have their rights respected i think there are probably quite a few ways over the last maybe 10 years but certainly recently disabled people's rights are actually shrinking rather than growing and that all needs challenging and i think with power being a large you know working with a lot of people that gives them a lot of really useful intelligence which i think i would like to see national government having to respond to that evidence really and i don't just mean specific individual cases well that's obviously really important and can be very instructive but you know the numbers of people facing different challenges i think that becomes very powerful when you're trying to lobby for change and improvements in people's lives so i think that's that's certainly an area and i think the work that we've been doing together in hampshire with uh, the infrastructure that you know the advice and information and data to support the social prescribing work is also really really important so, yeah, I mean, I think the future looks very positive. Obviously, we're entering another period where money is going to be quite tight. But uh, And there is going to be a backlash, isn't there, in especially things like mental health services post-pandemic? Uh, well, it's, yeah, there's already a huge increase in demand. And I think that's likely to continue. But again, I think, um, and this is why the social prescribing bit of this is very important, I think, as well, that sometimes you want an advocate because you, you need to have... You need to confront something that's not good. But sometimes you don't need that. You just need someone who's got a bit of time to plug you into the stuff that is there. And in particular, to not treat you as someone who needs a health service or a social service. It's just, just to treat you as a person. Now, obviously, power does that. But because it's focused on advocacy, it's usually focused on a point in your life when you need to argue your case. Mm. I think with social prescribing, it's often just... You know, you just somebody just needs to hear that you really what's most important to you is the chance to go fishing, and that doesn't have to be an advocacy issue if there's a fishing group and we can find you know find a way for you to go to it. So, but also it's about saying yes, you're anxious about COVID or whatever, and but that doesn't necessarily mean you're ill. It just means we need to address your anxiety, and if we can do that, you won't need any of these services. And that's sometimes that's a lower level than the sort of issues the power is dealing with sometimes there's an overlap and i think it's good to have those range of options that can help people because i think some of the statutory services are still a bit scared when you say advocacy and so it's good to have that range but but no i think it's it's really interesting being forced to think back 25 years because some things have got lots better some things have got worse i mean i think most things have got better but certainly the levels of things like food poverty we couldn't imagine when we started out there'd be such a thing as a food bank. I mean, that's scary. And then also, of course, there wasn't, there was no internet, there were no mobile phones. It was, or they were just coming in, maybe mobile phones. 
it was it was a very different world and some of some of the technology is amazing for disabled people you know it's helping them chat like we are now over zoom and all these kind of things which is making up for the fact that very often transport's not very good or you know all those sort of things mm. so people have got more options in some ways but sometimes feels like they've got less in others which is why it's you know really important that people like power there to help them get the best deal they possibly can thank you tim for speaking with us today it's been very interesting